Ashley's Memorial Day sale is going on now. Shop our biggest selection of hot buys, cool deals, or shop limited time savings on new summer spaces. Plus, get 72 month special financing on select in store mattress purchases made with your Ashley Advantage Synchrony credit card between May 14th and June 3rd. Whether you're redecorating indoors or rethinking your outdoor space, save big on this season's trending styles only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required, no minimum purchase required. See store for details. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, welcome back to America. Did you bring us anything? I, I brought you the, the kind regards of the people of Holland. You know. A snow globe. By the way. A trinket. Uh, not a trinket. I always get my daughters, so I get them the airport magnets, and they now have a pretty massive collection of airport magnets. I was in the Netherlands for a very uh, strange holiday. It's called King's hmm. Day, and it's just every year on the king's birthday, near as I can tell, they put on orange and get shit-faced. Um, <laughs> and, and like, hey. like if the king dies, like in the next king, the, the holiday will change to that king's birthday. It's kind of a like interesting idea for a holiday. You just pick somebody's birthday and you get hammered on it, you know? I mean, it, it sounds a lot like a lot of holidays we know and love. <laughs> yeah, and we'll say true, Patty's true. Day, yeah, yeah, you know? Yeah. Like, that's a beauty. I love it. Yeah. Um, well, we're, we're glad to have you back. How's the jet lag? It's not great because uh, I was there, as you know, on a family vacation largely. Then I was back here for a week. Then I was back there. And I'm like, you know what? Um, this was easier when I was 32. Um, and well, yes, let's just leave it at that. I was going to make a Ronnie Jackson joke, but I won't. Mm. <laughs> Ronnie Jackson, the uh, the famous White House drug dealer. I remember him. Yes. Um, Anyway, <laughs> we are going to talk about uh, Ukraine, the upcoming election in the Philippines, French politics, Saudi Arabia, torture-loving life coaches, Ben, mm. porn in parliaments, mm. uh, and then great foreign policy minds that may or may not be heading to Congress. And then later in today's episode, you're going to hear my interview with Bill Gates, Ben, about his new book about how to prevent the next pandemic. How about that shit? Did you feel... Like, even from a distance, there was a danger of the microchip or whatever it is that Bill Gates is putting in everybody? I could feel it going off when I asked bad <laughs> questions. I accidentally asked him if he invented the iPod, and it started, like, stinging my, uh, my, my back of my neck. I just want to, before we get into the substance, I do want to point out that you seem to have gotten COVID right around that interview. <laughs> I did. I did, get, I did, like, probably catch COVID <laughs> on the Tuesday that I interviewed him, although it showed up in the little uh, in the little test on Friday. You know, it's an interesting book. I read it over the weekend. It's a quick read. I mean, he like touches on all the, uh, the stuff you just mentioned, the disinformation, but then also his his plan for how he thinks the world should be dealing with COVID. I mean, it won't surprise you to hear that he does not feel like we're doing enough to prevent the next pandemic, even if a lot of parts of the response to the, the coronavirus, COVID-19 pandemic were pretty good, notably the the vaccine development process. But, um, you know, check it out. Yeah. Why not, right? Check it out. Bill Gates, world historical figure. Yeah. Big deal. Uh, don't miss Offline this week, Ben. John talks to tech policy expert Renee DiResta about Elon Musk buying Twitter and free speech. I know you know Renee DiResta. Yes. She's like someone I followed on Twitter for a long time, like super smart super about impressive. all things disinformation. Yeah. Also, given all the awful news that broke last night, uh, where we are learning that the Supreme Court is like on the cusp of overturning Roe versus Wade, Check out this week's Strict Scrutiny podcast. 
It's a fantastic new show, new part of the Crooked Network. Leah Littman, Kate Shaw, who we worked with, Ben, yeah. uh, Melissa Murray, three brilliant women, uh, law professors, lawyers, geniuses. They break down the draft ruling, what we know, what we don't know. Like They're the only people I want to hear provide the context with this opinion. And you know, just the the other context for the world has been is like right before I was signing on to do this, I was reading a a piece in the New York Times about how backwards the United States is from a global perspective when it comes to abortion rights. Since 2000, 31 countries have expanded access to abortion. Only three have rolled it back: Nicaragua, Poland, which we've discussed in its right wing uh, tilt, and now the United States. So great company there. Yeah, I've been struck in the, just the last, you know, however many hours it is, 12 hours since getting that kind of devastating news. Um, I've heard from like people in other countries, you know, like as if we're, you know, some some. it's interesting what this must look like from abroad. It makes no sense. Like people don't understand people saying like, I didn't think that could actually happen in your country. Right. Um, but it is like what happens when. You get a court packed with far right uh, judges. But yeah, to your point, we've covered on the show like deeply Catholic countries like Mexico and um, Argentina. Argentina. Like, like they can move in the direction of abortion rights. Uh, it's insane that this is where we are in 2022. Yeah, completely insane. So check out Strict Scrutiny. Fantastic show. Um, they will they will understand this even better than we do. I promise you that. Um, so Ben, let's go to Ukraine because the war there is raging on. A few updates and major developments just worth noting off the top. So the British government releases these sort of intel assessments of the war on Twitter, either daily or a couple times a week. They said that this week that uh, Russia has committed 65% of its entire ground combat force into Ukraine, and more than a quarter of those units have been rendered combat ineffective. I assume that means like busted equipment, tanks, not enough troops to man it. Um, They also believe that uh, 15,000 Russian troops have been killed and up to twice as many have been wounded. So an enormous cost for the Russians in just a few months here. President Biden requested $33 billion in aid for Ukraine. Speaker Pelosi just led a delegation to Kiev and to Poland for meetings about Ukraine. Uh, Germany seems to have finally gotten behind a European oil embargo on Russia. Uh, and that could come into effect as soon as the end of the year. Germany also said they now are ready to back Sweden and Finland uh, in their efforts to get into NATO. So again, huge shift for Germany in terms of the last two months. And then, you know, there's been all these stories about how the Ukrainian military and intelligence services have gotten bolder and have started hitting targets across the border within Russia itself. Those range from fuel depots, military research institutes. There was a mysterious fire at a textbook company warehouse that had just, I guess, tried to erase the word Ukraine from its textbook. So that was interesting. So then I think we could pause there. Um, I've been thinking about this kind of scenario from the very beginning, like whether Ukraine would want to go across the border and strike targets in Russia. There's like obvious strategic military reasons to blow up like an ammo depot or a fuel depot. But there's also this kind of psychological question of whether doing so like whether Russians hearing air raid sirens in a city just outside of Moscow brings the war home to them, makes it more real, makes it more threatening, makes them question it, or whether it could galvanize public opinion in support of the war because they feel like they're being attacked. Have you been surprised by these these cross-border attacks by the Ukrainian military? And, and do you have a sense of like how that might cut in terms of public opinion? Well, you know, they've been really interesting about it because they don't claim credit, but they also kind of, you know, they kind of wink at you a little bit. Um, yeah, they do the Israeli kind of non denial Yeah, denial. yeah. And, and so clearly that's part of a strategy that they have. I think that the common thread in all the things that you just talked about 
is the sense that we're entering into like a pretty long and protracted phase of the war, right? So this ground battle in Donbass is a much more grinded out on the ground military conflict than the kind of failed lightning maneuver on Kyiv that we saw. The $33 billion in assistance, which included things like budgetary support for the Ukrainian government for the next five months, you know, that's not just like rushing in some weapons for like the, you know, next couple of weeks. That's like preparing them to be on a, a sustainment model for fighting for a period of months. And then, yes, like striking targets inside of Russia, you know, is clearly going to, on the one hand, have some psychological impact inside of Russia that this war could actually cause damage here and probably some morale boost inside of Ukraine. But it's also like likely to potentially harden some Russian opinion that has already coalesced in the kind of rally around the flag or maybe rally around the disinformation machinery um, that, that we've seen. But to that end, actually, I understand why the Ukrainians would take that risk because the Russians, Russian people are so locked inside of some alternative universe that it's not like you got a sense that they were like ripe for some uprising here, you know, like, like there, there didn't seem to be um, any potential for a near term tipping point that would be somehow upset by the Ukrainians doing this. I think what's interesting is how does this interact with two questions? The first is like the U.S., as we've talked about, has been reluctant. You know, we're giving them weapons to kind of push back against Russian offensives but not the kind of weapons that are like designed to like go win the war. Like here's here's all the tanks and here's all the planes and here's all the long range artillery that could be used to bomb targets inside of Russia. And so since this is happening, you have to wonder how it may impact that calculus and whether or not the U.S. kind of knows that this is happening or, or gets any forewarning about what these types of targets are. And then the second is whether Russia will become more aggressive in hitting the weapons that are flowing into the Ukrainians, you know, because now, you know, they're in this fight, they're in it for the long term, they see the U.S. sustaining and strengthening the Ukrainian military, and they see stuff blowing up in Russia. Will they get more aggressive and bombing kind of border resupply um, of those weapons that are flowing all the way to the front in ways that, that could be precarious, you know? $33 billion. Like my jaw dropped when I saw Biden float that number. I mean, Biden, today is May 3rd. Biden is visiting a Lockheed Martin facility that makes javelin missiles <laughs> yeah. as we speak. That is the weirdest message event I can ever imagine in White House history. It was like, uh, <laughs> what I if mean, I told you, Tommy, uh, like uh, five years ago, that Joe Biden would be visiting a Lockheed Martin javelin anti-tank manufacturing facility the day after it leaked that the Supreme Court was overturning Roe v. Wade. I mean, it's just a strange time we're in, man. Uh, yeah, I would say why. Yeah, why? <laughs> what's, yeah, yeah. what's going on? I mean, that, back to this question of like how the war is going over in Russia. There are reports this week of uh, about a Russian oligarch who criticized the war and was severely punished and forced to basically sell his assets in a fire sale and go into hiding. 
there's also reports that the U.S. believes that Russian intelligence orchestrated an attack on Dmitry Muratov, who's a Nobel Prize winning journalist who would criticize the war. They like threw like I think acid in his face. So that's the price of dissent. Um, you know, we we did an interview with a, a woman named Maria Adiva, who's a researcher at the European Expert Association. She studies disinformation. She talked a bit about how Russian propaganda is being used to justify the Russian war crimes that we've seen. Here's a clip. The exact battalion which was uh, killing civilians, children, raping women in Bucha, they all get the, the medals from Putin for what they have done. So, uh, and now the propaganda is working to create this support for, for the new and new war crimes committed here. So you will see that the numbers of the support of Putin and his actions and generally the politics of Russia and this war, the support is growing. And uh, that means that the propaganda and disinformation inside Russia, they are working. For example, we have a woman that lives in the subway here in Kharkiv and she calls her mother in Moscow uh, telling that she lives there because her house was bombarded by Russian planes. And her mother will not believe her because she will tell her this is just uh, your Ukrainian uh, propaganda. These are the Nazi uh, government in Kiev that does it to you. There are numerous such situations when close relatives will not believe uh, people who Ukrainians who stay here and who suffer from this war. You know, depressing stuff there, Ben, in terms of any hope that... Uh the reality of this war would break through in, in Russia and, you know, there might be some sort of popular uprising against it. We've just seen no sign of that. Yeah, I think it, it definitely underscores that the idea that, you know, some people had when the, Rus- when the war began is that because there are so many connections between Russians and Ukrainians, because there are the kind of family ties that she referenced, that perhaps the shock at the potential atrocities in Ukraine or the shock at the idea that in, in very you know Russian-speaking cities like Kharkiv, the Russian public wouldn't want to be engaged in those types of atrocities. I think the tragic truth is the combination of propaganda and disinformation, you know, that's just not happening. Like the Russian public either is not looking at what its military is doing or it doesn't care what its military is doing because it's whipped into such a frenzy um, and and that, again, that just feels like all this kind of contributes to this war continuing. Um, the reality, though, is that something you said, you know, about the British report, the Russians' capacity to sustain kind of this pace of deployment, absent more mobilization of more troops, and frankly, just the fact that they're draining down their weapons stocks and sanctions are going to make a, it harder for them to kind of restock. Putin may need to kind of hit the pause button at times, right? Like I, uh, you know, I've mentioned this before, but be very mindful or wary if you see Putin say, well, I want to ceasefire to negotiate about whether that's just him buying time to kind of take a breather and before they start up again. Um, But all this suggests like a Russian public that is hardening. Those who are against the war, many of them are leaving. Um, And you know, the Ukrainians are obviously getting more and more, um, I don't want to use the word radicalized because it has a negative connotation, but like, it, you know, th- their interest in like making peace with Russians, uh, particularly if it involves surrendering more Ukrainian territory um, and leaving the Ukrainians who live in that territory to to Russian 
rule, that seems less likely. So all this points to kind of uh, this conflict continuing for the foreseeable future. Yeah, I mean, I think that actually kind of speaks to why Biden put forward this huge $33 billion request, because I think they're going to go all in on supporting the Ukrainian military now where they would before the Russians can kind of reconstitute the army resupply. But to your to your point there, Ben, about sort of the uh, hitting pause or creating sort of a political framework to slow down the military effort. There's reports today that U.S. intelligence officials believe that Russia is planning to fully annex territory in eastern and southern Ukraine. That basically means holding sham elections or, or a, a referendum in Donetsk or Luhansk and, you know, basically coercing people into voting in favor of independence or to become part of Russia. On the one hand, like that's not surprising to read. This is the Russian playbook. The Russians did this in Crimea. They forced those the Crimean people to essentially vote in favor of secession. But, um, you know, Russia holds up those results. They pretend it lends some legitimacy to their annexation. I guess my question is, like, who is going to buy this now? You know what I mean? Like, in the past, you could imagine some waffling European country pointing to the results of a sham referendum and being like, see, it's what the people wanted. Like, we can keep importing Russian gas or whatever. But like now, after Bucha, after Mariupol, like who who is going to be fooled by this? Like, why even bother? I don't know. Well, I think there's kind of three audiences. So and and I should say, and I was just checking the date um, uh, that is today, because May 9th is Victory Day in Russia. And that's like a mm-hmm. usually a big kind of militarized holiday. And a lot of the suspicion was that Putin was trying to kind of wrap up the war by May 9th. That doesn't look likely. Yeah, good luck there, with that, buddy. There was even yeah. a bizarre report that Pope Francis said um, that, that Viktor Orban had told him that Putin said the war would be over by May 9th. Um, but it may really? be that, Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's <laughs> like wow. the, the idea that a NATO prime minister had a heads up on that is a, a little concerning, but we'll put that aside. Um, Jesus. But the... Uh, I say that because I think he may want something for May 9th, right? Some like maybe it, you know, and there were some rumors that he might do a national mobilization to conscript more troops on May 9th, but he may want to lift up one of these sham referendum or announce it. Um, And look, I think there's three audiences. The first is in Russia, where he can, I think, more easily use one of these things to say, see, look, we have liberated the oppressed Russian speaking public of X part of Ukraine, Luhansk, Donetsk, whatever it is, um, and, and they just become, you know, essentially kind of a part of Putin's propaganda play at home. Then the second is like these kind of swing states, right, where Russian propaganda and disinformation can get more legs. So obviously China, where the, the media is totally filtered through what the government wants there, but even in a place like India or South Africa, where... There's a lot of anti-American, anti-NATO sentiment kind of mixed in with some longstanding ties with Russia. This kind of just muddies the water, gives it a both sides feel to it. Um, and, and so it could gain some traction there. I think it's at this point, yeah, his capacity to convince anybody in Europe or the United States or you know countries like Japan and, and others that, that have taken a stand, that's not even really the audience in a way. Th- those audiences, I think Putin may want to uh, that that waffling European nation that you hi- I did a hypothetical about, those are the countries that might be more susceptible to him saying like, well, I want a ceasefire now and I want to negotiate. So no need to move forward with your plans to move to a European oil embargo. <laughs> you know, um, that may yeah. be the next uh, turn in Putin's uh, kit here. 
hell, you might be able to get Tucker Carlson, maybe Marjorie Taylor Greene, maybe J.D. Vance, get some Republicans on board, you know, see what you can do here. Um, the other la- last thing on, on Ukraine, Ben, is I, I noticed that uh, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov has been building bridges with the Jewish community. Um, yes. Lavrov did an interview with the Italian TV where he was pressed on the question of why Putin wants to denazify or says he wants to denazify a country that is led by a Jewish president. Uh, Lavrov's response was, quote, Hitler also had Jewish origins, so it means nothing. For a long time now, we've been hearing the wise Jewish people say that the biggest anti-Semites are the Jews themselves, end quote. Uh, for the record, this is baseless. There's some speculation about like one of Hitler's grandfathers that he might have been Jewish, but there's no evidence of that. Regardless, the suggestion that Jews are responsible for the Holocaust is one of the most cynical, disgusting things a human being could say. Uh, Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett seems to agree. He said that the, quote, goal of such lies is to accuse Jews themselves of the most awful crimes in history, which were perpetrated against them. Um, Ben, I admittedly have never um, uh, concocted a pretext for a war, but I kind of think that if you end up blaming the Jews for the Holocaust, it doesn't suggest that the sales job is going too well. Uh, you know, what, what do you think of uh, Sergei's little little slip up here? Well, in comparing Zelensky to Hitler, that's really something. I mean, I um, it's interesting, you know, because look, Lavrov, I, I've been in a lot of meetings with that guy and, and he's a man who seems to be, you know, in his job in part because he can lie with complete casual ease. Um, but he's not an idiot. Like he's he's clearly like a smart guy, a deeply experienced guy. And so there's just something extra chilling about someone who you know is not a moron saying like the most awful shit imaginable, right? And and also the fact that this denazification rationale that they had at the beginning, that, that they're still so fervently committed to it, you know? It permeates mm-hmm. like all their propaganda. If you ever like go down and red pill the Russian media, they're just screaming about Nazis. I saw the craziest fucking segment on Russian television, like speculating about the date that the Germans announced something was some Nazi day of import. And so it's like real Alex Jones. Mm. But I mean, like Lavrov and all these people are, are, are so, it's such a cult of Putin that, you know, it, that's probably not Lavrov's first choice of even how to gaslight. But he has to do it. Like he has to go out and yeah. somehow your job as foreign minister of Russia is now to make the case that Zelensky's a Nazi and, and a Jewish guy could be a Nazi. It just that's the degree to which Putin has like a vice grip on these people's brains. We talked about Dmitry Medvedev, hardly like a bloodthirsty guy. He's more like a you know, London oligarch type Russian. You know, he said the most chilling shit too. Like all these people are so in line with or afraid of or whatever the re- motivation is behind it, not only are they defending this, they're defending it on exactly the terms that Putin wants, which is this Nazi thing. It's really dark. Yeah, Lavrov's going um, full Goebbels here, yeah. uh, ironically. I mean, the, the fucked up part is, you know, when you hear reports from, you know, Ukrainian civilians who survived in places like Bucha, they over and over and over again say like soldiers come to their house, kick down the door and say like, where are the Nazis? You know, so it's like this propaganda is permeating. It is working among the rank and file yeah. troops who are actually fighting the war. And I think like leading to atrocities. It's it's, it's horrific. All right. That's all I got for Ukraine. Uh, why don't we take a quick break and we come back. We are going to talk about some big elections coming up in the Philippines. 
Support for Pod Save the World comes from the International Rescue Committee. The IRC works in more than 50 countries, serving people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. In places like Gaza, Ukraine, and Sudan, displaced families are experiencing war, extreme hunger, and life-threatening injuries. In Gaza, ongoing violence, bombardment, and blockade have made survival difficult for families living in damaged buildings and tents. The lack of safe water, medicine, and healthy food contributes to the spread of diseases, and children are especially at risk. The International Rescue Committee is working with local partners in Gaza to provide life-saving medical care to injured civilians. The IRC works around the world to help families in crisis by delivering critical supplies such as therapeutic food for malnourished children, clean water, cash assistance, and more. Your donation will support this work and help children and families survive. Listen, the International Rescue Committee is an incredible organization. They are doing the Lord's work all around the globe. I have donated to them, you know, for many, many years now because I know that my dollar will go towards helping people. It's not going to go to administrative costs or overhead fees. It's just an incredible group doing great work. I hope you'll consider them. Donate today by visiting rescue.org slash rebuild. That's rescue.org slash rebuild. All right, Ben, so there's a big election coming up in the Philippines. Um, we have talked about the current president, Rodrigo Duterte, several times on the show, mostly in the context uh, of his brutal war on drugs, which is basically, you know, instructing his goons to kill people first, ask questions later. Uh, the current vice president, uh, Lenny Robredo, who is a Duterte critic, is running against Ferdinand Marcos Jr., the son of the late dictator, yeah, can't make this shit up, who locked up and tortured tens of thousands of people uh, and whose family stole billions of dollars from the country before fleeing in the 80s. This election, like so many elections recently, is just like a wash in disinformation on social media. A lot of it is focused on whitewashing the Marcos family's history. So in a sense, like what they're voting on is not just about Duterte's tenure or the drug war or you know, picking the next leader of the Philippines because Duterte is term limited out technically. I think his daughter's running for vice president as well. But it's also about potentially like rewriting the history of the Philippines. Um, uh, Marcos Jr. is popular with young voters who didn't live through the military dictatorship, who don't know people who are detained, tortured. Um, the vote is on May 9th. Ben, anything you're watching for in this one or, or just sort of like thoughts about the stakes? Well, it looks like we should say, I mean, it looks like Marcos is poised to win pretty substantially, right? I mean, he's got like, he's doubling up, I think, his nearest rival in most polls. And, you know, a few things. I mean, Duterte is is involved here. Like his daughter uh, is running for vice president, uh, but vice president as the Marcos-affiliated candidate. And, you know, point one is, I'm sure there's some deal, you know, there's some questions around corruption in Duterte. I'm sure that in exchange for his support, the Duterte family has kind of carte blanche to do whatever the fuck they want, right? You know, so keep your eye on on the corruption angle here. Because, I mean, remember the Marcos family, Imelda Marcos famously had one of the, the better shoe collections. I'm dating myself here. Yeah. But if you want to no, yeah. go down a rabbit hole, just Google Imelda Marcos shoes. Um, they took like $10 billion in 1986 dollars. Insane. Like I mean, insane like amounts of massive money. Massive amounts of money. Yeah, and that's it. Well, then that's the other thing. It's just how depressing and cynical it is that like – that this is literally a merger of two dictatorial families, you know, like know. the Marcos <laughs> family and the Duterte family. And that's like the best that the Philippines can get. 
And I know this is Don Jr. running with uh, George P. Bush in like (laughs) totally, totally. (laughs) That's exactly what it is. And 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 you know the reality is that that that, that Duterte has been somewhat popular with his kind of identity politics like strongman act, but also like you know there's a huge Facebook meta disinformation or propaganda problem. You talked to Maria Reza about it, um, the Nobel laureate from the Philippines. There's a, you know, there's a, just kind of a big media advantage for Marcos yeah. and Duterte. And Filipino civil society and opposition has been put on the defensive. It's been divided against itself. And so I think it's a depressing sign because, you know, Southeast Asia is going to be kind of critical to the direction of world events, particularly as you see this kind of decoupling of the democratic and authoritarian worlds. And there are not many democracies in Southeast Asia. Um, the Philippines has been one. Um, but when you look at, you know, the direction of, of, Fil- of the Filipino democracy, it's not great. Um, and, you know, it raises questions about Indonesia, the biggest country in Southeast Asia, which is kind of up next for an election. There's some worries that the existing president, Jokowi, might try to extend his term. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's not a great situation. I, you know, like it's never great when the son of the dictator is who was uh, chased out of town after assassinating and torturing enemies. Uh, the son of the dictator is elected. That's never like a good bellwether. No, super, super depressing news. Uh, follow Maria Ressa and uh, Rappler yes. News if you want to learn more about this because they're doing amazing work out there. Uh, okay, so that was a bummer of a story. Here's some good news, potentially, or at least very interesting news. So we covered the results of the French presidential election a couple of weeks ago. President Macron beat the far-right opponent, Marie Le Pen. Uh, France's parliamentary elections in June. On Monday, there were some reports that the Green Party in France and the party, you know, the group backing the leftist leader, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, have reached a deal to join forces. So that means they won't compete against each other for seats in parliament. The goal here being to collectively win a bunch of seats, create a coalition of leftist lawmakers in parliament, and then actually put pressure on Macron from the left. We've talked about this before. He is radically centrist, um, and he's been pushed to the right over the years because of pressure from Marine Le Pen, uh, Eric Zemmour, the even more radical lunatic who ran in the presidential. So this could be an interesting and important alliance and an effort to create some you know, liberal political pressure on the French presidency. So fingers crossed. Yeah, I think, I mean, the reason I think this is really positive is the French left has been just totally fractured really since Francois Hollande, who was a socialist, ended his presidency um, in 2017. And I I just, it's not healthy because what what you've seen is you've got like a really consolidated far right. um, And as we noted, Marine Le Pen getting over 40% of the vote. Then you got like a kind of really like, eager, enthusiastic neolib, you know, like <laughs> centrist in Macron. And you just need like a healthy left, you know, yeah, to yeah. both for the for the parliamentary purposes and potentially to push France on things like climate change. Um, but in the longer run, to just have a, a better alternative uh, next time around than just Le Pen or some version of centrist politics. Uh, and, you know, I think there's going to have to be a generational change at some point. Um uh, Mélenchon is like, you know, Bernie's old. age. You know, yeah, he's yeah. old. Um, you know, Bernie's got a little more vigor. Um, but um, yeah, so a good step. But I think the 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 thing to watch is whether 
the left can stay united and there can be some kind of emerging leadership that can put forward an alternative vision of France. Um, and and that, that's a longer term project. Yeah. And get some real power in parliament because, you know, there's, there's reports that, you know, uh, Macron could have a, an absolute majority out of these elections, but also that Le Pen could gain like up to 100 seats. So, you know, you need a little more balance than that. And, and and the weird thing is that that party of Macron, so it's just like he built it from scratch. Uh, yeah, all Marche. So I remember new. going, o- yeah, I remember going over there after the last election and meeting with some of these on Marche lawmakers and they, they were all over the map ideologically. There were some younger, more progressive people. Then there were some like more conservative people from rural areas. So it, it's a useful governing vehicle for Macron, but it's not evolving into some kind of long-term coherent party that I can see, you know? Yeah, yeah, me either. Um, switching gears here to the Middle East. Uh, there was a report today uh, in the Wall Street Journal that CIA Director Bill Burns traveled to Saudi Arabia last month to meet with Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, or MBS. Uh, we don't know what they discussed. It probably included oil production, the Iran deal, the war in Yemen, Russia, Ukraine, that kind of basket. Uh, this comes after the journal did a long piece a couple weeks ago on U.S.-Saudi relations. Uh, it included an anecdote where MBS reportedly shouted at Jake Sullivan, Biden's national security advisor, for bringing up the Saudi government's execution of a journalist named Jamal Khashoggi in 2018. MBS reportedly told Jake not to bring it up again and said that the Saudis won't boost oil production. So uh, MBS basically wants to be recognized as head of state because that will give him you know, some sort of legal immunity for Khashoggi's killing. So I don't know, Ben, cool, cool ally. I'm not sure what else to say here. It's good stuff. I, I I just um, I find this all kind of depressing. Uh, you know, I, I I I imagine that they're really the Russians and the Chinese are probably putting the full court press on the Saudis to kind of like you know yeah. pull them into their orbit a little bit. And oh, we won't bring up Jamal Khashoggi. Don't worry about it. You know, like we'll hang out with you without bringing that stuff up. I mean, like we always forget that we have some leverage here in the sense that like you know the Saudis depend on us for their security <laughs> and. Uh, and arming them. But uh, I, I just say, like, we should just say, like, it's just, it's just kind of depressing. Like, the reports that Biden doesn't want to go back in the Iran deal because he's refusing to lift a Trump designation that was made after Trump pulled out of the Iran deal, designating the Iranian Revolutionary Guard a terrorist organization, a designation that accomplishes nothing uh, practically, but it's just kind of American politics. The war in Yemen continues um, with U.S. support. Um, and, you know, we kind of keep trying to make up with MBS without having to do it publicly, you know, like the, all these private channels. And I, I'm, I'm, you know, I see why I, if I was sitting in the white house, I see the imperative of, Hey, here's this giant oil producing country that can swing things this way or that in terms of oil prices or, but if we are in a battle of democracies versus autocracies, I don't know how the democratic team wins with MBS in its starting lineup, you know, like that's like the guys on the other team, you know, and I also don't think that there's any Saudi bailout that's going to deal with uh, energy prices in any kind of sustainable way. Clean energy is the only way to do that, too. So like getting right, getting on the right side of this, both in terms of clean energy and democracy, those two imperatives, probably the two biggest imperatives in the world today, the survivability of democracy and dealing with climate change, neither of those answers run through Mohammed bin Salman. 
Yeah, and there's a bunch of reporting about how, you know, because of the war, because of the pandemic, nothing has happened on clean energy in this first few months of this year. And that's obviously time we don't have to waste. Ben, in this long Wall Street Journal story about like the US-Saudi relationship, this paragraph triggered me so hard. I'm just going to read it verbatim. The Saudis were dismayed by the American withdrawal from Afghanistan, as well as the Biden administration's ongoing efforts to revive the Iran nuclear deal. They've also begun to question the U.S. military commitment to the Middle East and bristle at presumptions that the kingdom will fall in lockstep with Washington. Okay, so I know it's like a statement of fact, but it's like, I don't care that you didn't want to end the war in Afghanistan. I don't care that you don't like the Iran deal. Why should we be more committed to the Middle East? And like, who, when have you ever fallen in lockstep with Washington? You, this whole story is about Saudi Arabia giving the middle finger to the United States. Well, yeah, you know what I'm dismayed about? I'm fucking dismayed about the fact that you chopped up a journalist in a consulate in Turkey. I'm dismayed that you lock up your political opponents, including members of your own family. I'm dismayed at the war in Yemen and the tens of thousands of people who've been killed there for for no coherent objective. Uh, I'm dismayed that the Saudis meddle in our politics on issues like Iran so that what, we can not have an Iran deal and therefore be forced to confront an Iran that is on the doorstep of a nuclear weapon. And oh, guess what the Saudis will want us to do then? They'll want us to go to war for them in Iran to remove that regime for them with American troops, right? Not Saudis. They love it when Americans fight for their interests. Uh, I'm dismayed that they have not said word one against a brutal Russian invasion of Ukraine. I'm dismayed about their support for warlords in eastern uh, Libya uh, who have been a permanent kind of cancer on that uh, country. I'm dismayed by the fact that Mohammed bin Salman thinks that you know he can sit in Riyadh and dictate terms to Washington. This is crazy. What kind of what kind of relationship is this? Where? Like they, they, they just sit there and, and lob, you know, hand grenades of criticism at, at the United States, who, by the way, have made plenty of mistakes of our own. But often the, we've made mistakes sometimes when we we do things like support the Saudis in Yemen. That's a huge mistake that we made. So I, I just don't think that this if, if the if you read The Wall Street Journal, sometimes you think that the the goal of the U.S.-Saudi relationship is for the Saudis to like us. And so right. therefore, if we're not doing everything that they want us to do, that's somehow a mark against us. Um, let's not forget like what type of leadership we're talking about. Yeah, we got a uh, homicidal maniac with a sovereign wealth fund who's uh, yeah. buying off Jared Kushner and and giving us the finger. And you know, there was the whole thing about the nine eleven attackers coming from Saudi Arabia. We won't go down that road. Uh, yeah. A couple lighter things to close, Ben. So, just on a personal level, do you ever feel kind of like aimless, like you could use some life advice? It just about every day these days, Tommy. <laughs> okay. So the, wor- the world is like that, you know. I have got the answer for you. So the CIA analyst played by Jessica Chastain in the movie Zero Dark Thirty has left government and she's become a life coach. Reuters had a long profile of her a few weeks back. Uh, in it, she continues to defend waterboarding. The piece also talks about her husband, who was also at the CIA, led the team that hunted for bin Laden. He is now a fan of QAnon and called on President Trump to impose martial law after he lost the election. So Ben, I, you know, I just want to flag this for a couple of reasons. One, it's notable and pretty disconcerting that you have these like unapologetic torture fans who come out of government and we've learned our like crazy conspiracy theorists. That's not good. Uh, two, people constantly suggest that the Obama White House was behind 
zero dark 30 no and like no, no. shape that narrative and that we like oh, liked God, this no. pro torture narrative that is not the case like look to people like this this woman and her husband who were shaping this pro torture narrative it like it drives me crazy to this day yeah i mean so th- th- this is an interesting rabbit hole we don't have to go all the way down it but like you were there like zero dark 30 was the cia was super into that movie you know, um, and the CIA provided uh, without, by the way, like this was not run through the White House. I think sometimes people assume the White House is everything. But like, as was the case uh, and was deeply reported on the amazing podcast Winds of Change, um, the CIA has their own relationships with, uh, you know, Hollywood and, and, and individual films. And they pushed hard the narrative in Zero Dark Thirty, which is a very particular CIA narrative around waterboarding's connection to the information that got Bin Laden. And I think everybody who's looked at this feels like that movie turned the dial way up in terms of the relevancy of that information versus other information, whether or not it could have been gotten in other ways. So that's a really important point for the record. I don't know if I'd want a life coach that's into waterboarding though, Tommy. Like it No. Doesn't it kinda like No me either. I'm kinda, kinda deal if you're dealing with like anxiety or like is that is that is that what but it, it is like the degree to which like people that have been in the the middle of the war on terror like Mike Flynn too like become you know enter Kooky. this the QAnon spectrum is is there's some lesson in that <laughs> like maybe you know people being engaged in and associated with and interacting with that kind of violence for that long period of time is not necessarily healthy for your information intake but not what I'm looking for in a life coach is that really the person you want to help you make that big decision about whether to take that next job or not, you know? No. And apparently there's a lot of like sort of health and beauty elements to this too. I'm not sure the waterboarding helps there either. Um, But, you know, (laughs) Ben, I'm glad you brought up QAnon uh, because look, foreign policy doesn't come up often in congressional campaigns. But when it does, we here at Pod Save the World pay attention. We are on it. Um, So I just want to play for you guys a clip that I think you found this on Twitter, Ben, from a Republican primary debate for Arizona's 2nd Congressional District. Let's give it a listen. Military aid to Ukraine. What do you think, Ron? I support military uh, aid to Ukraine, but I want to say that we would not even be in Ukraine if President Biden did not shut down the Keystone Pipeline on the first day. Because now that that's shut down, we have to get our oil and we're getting it from Russia and we're getting all these problems through the Ukraine. And that would not have happened if uh, Biden did not. So you see the Ukraine, the the pipeline helped prompt Russia to invade Ukraine. Yes, sir. Because we've got all of this oil coming through from Russia to the United States and they want the better routes to bring the oil through. Can I can I clarify? (laughs) This is what I'm talking about. That's not why they went into Ukraine. They went into Ukraine because Ukraine didn't want to be part of NATO. Listen, you're trying to be, you're trying to work on a national stage and you don't even know why the war started in Ukraine. It had nothing to do with the Keystone Pipeline. The Keystone Pipeline caused the, the inflation and the increase in our gas prices. The reason why they went into Ukraine is because Russia wanted Ukraine as they had them pre-World War II and Ukraine wanted to be part of NATO. Respond, please. He's right. I made a mistake. (laughs) 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 The the first voice you heard there is Ron Watkins, 
he is believed by a lot of people to be the person or one of the people behind the QAnon conspiracy theory, uh, or at least he hijacked it at some point along the way. The second voice was Walt Blackman. But it's just so rare that you hear so much wrong in one minute of a debate. It's incredible. I didn't even really know where to start. I, I started watching this and I thought, this is amazing. And then the reveal at the end just kills it, right? But oh, I, the twists. I mean, the Keystone Pipeline talking point was... He started and I'm like, oh, this is super interesting because this is so fucking dumb, right? The idea that like if we had the Keystone Pipeline, like they wouldn't invade it. And it felt like a, a talking point that he had no depth underneath it. But then he kept talking himself into different places. Like it was like a robot where like the water had been spilled and it, it's, you know, suddenly <laughs> it's not just the Keystone Pipeline. It's that the Russians want to build a pipeline, I guess, to America. Right. Right. Uh, I, yeah. And, underwater? And I underwater. Know. It's a long ocean. And like, what, what can he, there was, it wasn't enough that he was just giving a bad right wing talking point. There had to be like a conspiracy theory nexus mm-hmm. to it. Right. Um, and then, yeah, like why, you know, I mean, once you've gone that far out on a limb to just kind of surrender after the other dude says like, they want to go back to before World War II, which is maybe... Like, there's a lot right in that answer, but there's a little bit wrong, too. Like, I don't know. Uh, there's a lot, a lot going on there. I like how he starts by misspeaking, too. And he's like, no, Russia invaded Ukraine because Ukraine didn't want to join NATO. It's like, ah, no. Yeah, yeah. No. Yeah, I was going to say, like, uh, it, it, there's just, I, I, it was kind of depressing, right? Like, this is the, there's like kind of- He's running war, for Congress. There's like World War Three level conflict out there. And this is like the discussion about it out in America, like- and we can do better. Let's do better, people. Let's do a little bit better. Uh, and again, like Ron Watkins, there, there's a great uh, documentary on HBO Max, I think. It's uh, Beyond the Storm or something like that, about how Ron was probably the person behind the QAnon conspiracy yeah. theory. This is the dude who convinced like the former head of the unit at the CIA that was hunting bin Laden. So again, not really speaking well uh, about any part of our politics here or the security state. Yeah, it's not a great day for for analysts who help get bin Laden uh, when they're, 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 they're QAnon adjacent at all, you know? I mean, I get that, like, if you're sitting no. there piecing things together and everything, there are conspiracies in the world, but, like, QAnon is not yeah. one of them. You know, QAnon is Red not String was your business for a while, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Carrie Mathis, you know, like, you, you could see her, you could see Carrie from Homeland getting a little QE, you know? Couldn't you see that? Oh, 100%. Hundred yeah. um, percent. Well, listen. The last thing before the Gates interview, just to, to make us feel better about ourselves, is a, a quick political update from the UK. Um, a a sixty five year old conservative British MP named Neil Parrish resigned on Saturday after he was caught watching porn on his phone while in Parliament. Uh, Parrish said he was trying to search for a brand of tractor called the Dominator. And <laughs> you can guess uh, what he says happens next. This excuse gets more. Con- <laughs> This excuse gets more confusing because he was caught looking again. Uh, the first time he said it was an accident. The second time was on purpose. So this is the Boris Johnson party for you, Ben. Parties and porn. Porn, cocaine, you know, not since the Ted Cruz, like, uh, porn, tw- Twitter porn the has best. there been a lamer excuse, right? I mean. The, truly the best. Uh, what, you know, the Tory, come on, guys, like. Come on, Britain! Like you gave us, like Shakespeare, and, and this is this is not the best. You're not sending your best. No, no, 
Boris Johnson's giving a speech today, I think, to the Ukrainian parliament. Yeah, I mean, there, there's like a, you can laugh at this guy, he's a fucking clown, but there's also like a huge misogyny problem within the Tory party and within uh, British parliament itself. And like, you know, great way to show it by just literally watching porn on the floor. Did you see this story? The Daily Mail on Sunday had this story. Uh, Angela Rayner, who's one of the big labor stars, exciting young woman uh, politician. There was a story that Boris thought that... Uh, when she was sitting facing him and like prime minister's questions or whatever, yes, that she would try to spread her legs like Sharon Stone, yes, and basic instinct or something. I'm like, there's a lot of misogyny. And Boris actually apologized or condemned it or whatever. Um, but, um, there's a lot of just misogyny swirling around over there, you know. I mean, there is over here too. We just repealed Roe v. Wade, apparently. So I'm not, yeah, yeah. There's just giant glass house on our side of the Atlantic. I'm not. As usual, I'm not immuning ourselves from criticism here, but that, that seems like they need to focus on that a little bit. Yeah. Uh, if I were Boris Johnson, I would go through life assuming that no one of any gender was trying to seduce me at any time. That's, yeah. that's kind of like, <laughs> that would be my operating principle yeah, if I were Boris Johnson. Fair point. Fair point. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, and when we come back, you will hear my interview with Bill Gates about his new book about how to prevent the next pandemic. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. Uh, I am thrilled to welcome to the podcast today the founder of Microsoft and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the author of the new book, How to Prevent the Next Pandemic, which is out now, Bill Gates. Great to, great to see you. I'm holding up the book for those uh, watching for some reason, but it's a podcast. Um, so, Bill, <laughs> thanks for doing this. Uh, I read the book over the weekend. Uh, highly recommend it. It's a great sort of summary of what happened, what went right, what, what went wrong, and what to do next. For me, the big takeaway is, despite all the the death and the suffering and the enormous economic costs from COVID, the world is just still not prepared for the next pandemic. You sketch out some proposals for how you think we can fix that. Can you give listeners the, sort of the gist of where the shortfalls are in planning and what needs to get done to, to close those gaps? Well, it's pretty disappointing that we didn't take it seriously before it happened because the you know tens of millions of deaths and economic damage don't even cover the educational loss and the depression. So it's worth having uh, an investment in a surveillance uh, team at the global level. Uh, it's worth spending a lot to invent better tools, even better vaccines, uh, and then strengthening health systems so we see this stuff earlier. You know, I really do expect uh, that now we will uh, take these warnings to heart uh, and build up these capacities. And this year, while it's still fresh in our mind, it's a good time to actually make those investments. So one, you know, you put forward this plan, it's the GERM, I forget exactly what the acronym stands for, 
it's about, you say, 3,000 people, a billion dollars a year, basically, in spending. And that's for a sort of global infrastructure to monitor diseases. What, how, how big is that in terms of the, the investment you think we need globally to prepare for the next pandemic? Well, since this one cost us over $14 trillion, uh, and a lot of the things I advocate are extremely beneficial, even in years we don't have a pandemic, you know, that billion a year for the Global Epidemic Response and Mobilization Team, GERM, uh, you know, it's very small. Uh, they they would be full time, and they would run drills just like we do war games or fire drills. Uh, they'd make sure that every country can get uh, diagnostics and quarantine policies in place very very quickly. And if you look at COVID, uh, who had the low death rate? Um, countries like Australia that are less than 10% of the deaths per capita compared to the United States, it was that first 100 days where they rolled out diagnostics and quarantine. Um, You know, any rich country could have done that, and in the future, every rich country should. Yeah. Um, This this subject matter area, this discussion in the book even can get scary in places. You know, I worked in the White House National Security Council. I was in some very scary meetings about pandemic preparedness and diseases. So I want to get to the scary stuff in a second. But first, I mean, you also talk about some pretty hopeful areas of research and development uh, and advances that you have worked on or heard about that the layperson may not have, that might give us some hope and feel a little better about this before we get into the scary stuff. Can you can you give us some examples of those? Yeah. the uh, In the diagnostic area, every country should be able to diagnose their entire population in a month. And PCR machines are getting cheaper. We can get swabs out to people. We can make it so you don't have to stick it deep in your nose. Uh, So that's kind of the first line. The therapeutics took two years to come out. Uh, If we have libraries ready in advance, uh, those therapeutics could be available very early. And then finally, with vaccines, although we celebrate the incredible work that allowed those to come out within a year, Uh, The vaccines were not perfect. Uh, You still get breakthrough infections. Um, People who've been vaccinated, Omicron uh, can can infect. Uh, The duration of protection we're getting from these vaccines uh, appears to be a lot shorter than we'd like. And they're just not good enough in terms of variants in order to use them to eradicate uh, this disease from humans. So uh, a lot of R&D... Uh, against those product profiles. And I'm very optimistic in five to 10 years, we can get the full R&D agenda done and have an amazing uh, set of tools for the next time. The other thing that just sounds miraculous to me is the idea that we could have a vaccine to inoculate us against all coronaviruses. I mean, how? what's the time frame for something like that, do you think? Yeah, there was... Um, some very promising work done, uh, funded by the Gates Foundation and others, about a universal flu vaccine. Uh, flu, even when it's not an epidemic, uh, causes huge disease burden. If, if uh, pregnant women get flu in the first trimester, that leads to all sorts of bad outcomes for their children. So we'd love to get rid of all these respiratory viruses. The coronavirus family is a big one. The flu family is a big one. Then there's a third one. Uh, and so it'd be well worth, um, once you have the right tool, uh, trying to go for a, a full eradication and get getting rid of the yearly burden 
uh, as well as the risk that in humans it mutates into a, a more fatal form. Yeah. So, you know, a point you make in the book often is that, you know, as bad as COVID was, it could be worse. The The pages that kind of made my jaw drop, uh, literally, was when you started talking about smallpox, which spreads in the air, kills around a third of the everyone infected. This disease has been eradicated, but it still exists in research facilities in the U.S. and the former Soviet Union. You write about how the U.S. has enough vaccine doses for everyone, but few people are currently vaccinated because it was eradicated so long ago. Why not vaccinate everyone now? And and has your concern about smallpox increased since the war in Ukraine started? Well, bioterrorism is a very scary topic. And the things I say in my book we should invest in uh, would be able to stop a natural pandemic, one that comes, you know, across the species boundary uh, like COVID did. If you want to stop bioterrorists, then what you have to do in terms of immediate surveillance in places like airports is a lot more dramatic. And so it builds on everything I have in the book. You at least want to do those things at a minimum, uh, but it's not the full answer uh, to bioterrorism. And as you say, that's quite scary because a pathogen can be far more fatal than COVID was. And advances in biology, although they're mostly phenomenal because they'll give us uh, ways of treating cancer and solving Alzheimer's and uh, even infectious diseases. They also tend to arm uh, non-state actors uh, to be able to build uh, bioterrorism weapons. Yeah, it's it's, uh, quite frightening. Um, so just stepping back a little bit, I mean, one of the areas where, you know, you've taken some criticism uh, is the question of waiving drug company intellectual property rights as a way to get more vaccines or drugs produced. You know, in the book, you you helpfully walk through all the regulatory and manufacturing complexity involved in these processes, especially when it comes to new technologies like mRNA vaccines. And you argue that, you know, it's just not enough to, to release the recipe for the vaccine. You need the the Jose Andres, the, the chef there to walk you through the steps, the data about the trials and manufacturing itself, et cetera. So I am far from an expert in any of this. Um, but I guess my question is, if you're talking about a pandemic, a COVID, an HIV why wouldn't governments just say to vaccine or drug makers, hey, in this specific case, you're required to release the recipe and you're required to send your Jose Andres over to your competitor to make the vaccine? Like you talk about these second sourcing arrangements when essentially you license out this technology. But I guess why not force it to happen, incentivize it to happen, say, hey, we'll fund this as a government? Because it does seem clear that, you know, you say the IP waiver may not have meaningfully increased supply for this year. But if this is an endemic virus, it does seem like we'll need these boosters for years and years, right? Yeah, so the uh, vaccine that got invented at Oxford and became the AstraZeneca vaccine, that's exactly what happened. Uh, We funded uh, Serum Institute of India uh, to build up their factories, the foundation did, and they took that AstraZeneca approach, and they made over 1.4 billion vaccines. Uh, Today, COVID vaccines are in such oversupply that they've actually stopped production. And Mm -hmm. so those kind of agreements where AstraZeneca went out to over 20 places to try and get manufacturing done, 
the key decisions were all made by the spring of 2020. And so it's a little weird in the fall of 2021 to have people raising the IP issues for this specific uh, pandemic. In general, IP is very complicated. Sometimes there's too much, sometimes there's too little, and uh, we'll have to keep uh, tuning that. Uh, but for the COVID vaccines, uh, the you know the second sourcing deals were done, and you know eventually we got uh, into this excess supply situation. Got it. Um, and what other area you touch on in the book that's been much debated, much written about is this question of COVID's origin, right? There's the lab leak theory. There's the majority of scientists who believe that COVID emerged from a natural transfer to an animal, to a host, to a human host. Um, obviously, that origin story for COVID matters in terms of U.S.-China relations, for example, or I guess, you know, peace of mind for people who are suffering and, and want to know the answer. But from an epidemiological perspective, do you think that the origin story of COVID is particularly important or relevant to know? Well, sure. I mean, I think it's extremely clear it came from the wet market, but the need to be careful about biosafety in any lab that's dealing with viruses, they, you know, we could always repeat that uh, that's equally important. With smallpox, the last few deaths uh, was an accidental lab release in the UK uh, where one person died of, of smallpox and the other person committed suicide because they were involved in that mistake. So, you know, biosafety is important, uh, but no one's suggesting this was an intentionally created uh, thing. Um, and, it, you know, it's going to happen again. And what you do once it, it starts really doesn't change in terms of where where it came from. Do you think that some of the research that has been debated or discussed as well, like, you know, going into these caves in, in China and seeking out, you know, bats to, to get these viruses from directly or the gain of function research? I mean, are there limits that should be put on those areas? Do you think they're necessary? How are you thinking about that? Well, you need a lot of debate about that because seen in advance that there's a virus over in another species that with the small changes could cross over, that could get you ready to say, okay, how do I make a drug, an antiviral drug against it or an antibody uh, that would work against that? So for example, in flu, people did look at uh, how hard would it be for flu to get back to the Spanish 1918 version and there was all this controversy that, well, if you publish those articles, isn't that a roadmap for a bioterrorist? And therefore, should you be careful? And so it, it's very complex how much we should look. Ideally, we'd be able to look and see what might come in a way that's not enabling uh, bad actors. Um, you know, I'm, I'm confident that you know, we didn't do any sort of bad gain of function thing in this case, uh, but that examination and then simulations, uh, we probably do need uh, to get more sophisticated so we can think, okay, what what might the next thing look like? Mm -hmm. um, you know, sort of associated with this, this COVID pandemic was a, 
a pandemic of disinformation or a pandemic of conspiracy theories, for lack of a, a better word. I mean, you yourself have you spent billions of dollars trying to eradicate diseases, manage COVID, and yet people still have in some large numbers decided that you're trying to inject them with tracking devices for some reason. What do you make of this kind of conspiracy thinking? Like, does it, does it drive you crazy? Uh, like what, what is that like? It's a complete surprise to me. Obviously, you know, I understand the digital template that is part of what has magnified these sort of fringe views and allowed people who want over simple explanations, you know, there's a bad guy, that's why there's a pandemic or, you know, the general negativity towards vaccines, which is very dangerous because, you know, vaccines aren't just important for COVID, they're important for measles and pertussis and, you know, they save tens of millions of lives. So in a way I can joke around about, uh, you know, that by spending billions on vaccines, somebody says that I'm making uh, billions, but it is a serious topic that, we have to ask ourselves, could the communication of trusted people be better? Because clearly the vaccine fears uh, that weren't fully justified, you know, the fears about masks and things, you know, there was a cost here that we didn't get trusted advisors uh, to have clear messages so that, you know, the elderly rates of vaccination were like 95%. Yeah, I mean, you sort of walk through the timeline of all the various government or CDC messages around masking, and it is disheartening to look back. I mean, look, but but at the same time, it was a new virus, it was a novel coronavirus, it was an evolving data set. I mean, I, I don't know, are there, do you have thoughts on fixes for how to better communicate about an evolving pandemic or medical crisis like this? Well, the ideal is that you have somebody who's an epidemiologist uh, who they're hearing from constantly, and then, you know, secondary voices of different uh, political or religious or ethnic backgrounds who, you know, are largely uh, able to echo that central message. So it wasn't clear in this case who the messenger was, at least in the U.S., and there were a lot of things like scaling up diagnostics that nobody really took responsibility for. You know, to this day, it's not clear, is that the CDC's job or not? You know, organizing mm -hmm. trials, large trials of uh, therapeutics, which part of the government would do that? So there's a lot of retrospective of what went wrong, you know, where the U.S. was expected to do best of any country when an outbreak showed up, but in fact were, you know, as bad as any uh, rich country, um, you know, we did we didn't benefit from all that. Um, the one thing we did well is we funded the vaccine research from many many companies, uh, but otherwise we're we're just a, a we had a mediocre response. Yeah, I mean, I think anyone who's um, seen enough movies, seen Independence Day, etc., always hope that when the uh, the aliens came down to take on humanity, we would unite against them. But um, you know, COVID left me wondering. Maybe not. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, again, if you want a great retrospective on the pandemic, uh, the book is Bill Gates, How to Prevent the Next Pandemic. Last question for you. Um, just curious if you're planning to buy Facebook, TikTok, any other social media company, you want to break the news here, give us some clickbait, you know, or get, on, get in on those uh, Elon Musk trending stories? No, 
you know, the word, you know, I, I love the fact I get to write books and try and explain uh, important topics, uh, but I, you won't see me as a buyer of uh, any social networks. Okay. That's probably wise. Uh, yeah. I'd rather see, you know, people who are good at other things, keep doing those things rather than by, by Twitter. Anyway, uh, Bill Gates, thank you so much for writing the book and for talking with me today and, and have a great day. Thanks. Thanks again to Bill Gates for joining the show. Uh, ben, sorry, I got the cocoa and I'm not in the studio, but you know, hopefully I'll see you next week. Yeah. Hope to see you next week. And, uh, thanks to all the many patriotic, non-crazy members of our intelligence community. I just want to be clear. <laughs> they're not oh, yeah. all, they're, they're not all Q adjacent here. There's some wonderful people, some good friends of ours. No, there's some, out of that world, so. there's some good ones. And there's also, um, we should be clear that the, uh, when I, when I go out and ask friends who may or may not have worked alongside, uh, some of the folks we talked about earlier, they were well-known problems within the CIA and uh, caused huge problems for the agency. And uh, I think they're all glad they left. Well, Mike Flynn. Yeah, too. I mean, that, that guy wasn't helping. Yeah, Flynn. Yeah. Flynn, all of them, all of the above. Anyway, uh, that's feel all Feel better got. though, man. Feel better. Hang in there. You, uh, is anything helping? Like, do you, uh, you take an Advil or are you uh, drinking fluids there? Like what's the COVID regimen? I've been crushing uh, DayQuil today okay, and some NyQuil at night yeah. just to kind of like get through the symptoms. Mostly it's just an annoying cold that's kind of lingering. Yeah, yeah. So, no, thank you know, yeah, unvaxxed, yeah. this would have really sucked. Um, yes, yes. But hopefully you could, it'll be you okay. Could, I, could, I remember when I, I, you can kind of sense that, you know, like, um, boy, this is bad, but I can kind of feel how this would be much worse if I wasn't vaxxed and boosted. And, and, like, just the unknown of it all, you know, like, no new virus, you don't know how bad it's going to get, you know how long it's going to last. Like, you know, it definitely, like, kind of ameliorates some of that anxiety. Yes, yes, it does. Well, feel better. Thanks, buddy. And uh, see you guys soon. See ya. Positive the World is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our producer is Haley Muse. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to Saul Rubin for production support and to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, Milo Kim, and Amelia Montooth, who upload our episodes as videos at youtube.com slash crookedmedia. <laughs>